0: If you want an education, go to your computer browser or your phone and Google what is the meaning of life. You can get all kinds of answers from that. But life's greatest question is that very question. What is the meaning of life? How can we find true meaning for our lives? And you see, many people seek to find that answer in many different ways. They may try to fill their bodies with things that are not good for their bodies. They might try to fill their minds with thoughts that are not good for their minds. or They they might try to pursue relationships that they shouldn't, shouldn't pursue or to possess things that end up possessing them, whatever it might be. We find today in our passage that only through Jesus Christ can we find true meaning and not have only life here, but have eternal life. You see, I remember a time in my life, as many of you have probably heard my story, where uh, there was a time in my middle to high school years as a teenager that, that I did not have any meaning of life. Do you remember being a teenager? I know for some of you that was a long time ago, and for some of you it might have been just last week. But all of us at some point were teenagers. And I've always heard, well, you know, the people that have it, they have it so much harder today than they did in our day. And and while that's probably true in some respects, it's the same pressures, it's the same inadequacies, it's the same searching for everybody. And I remember at that time in my life, I was trying to find my way in a new town and in a new school and with a new circle of friends. And that time was hard enough Without having the stress of relocating, my dad relocated from Richmond, Virginia to uh, Spartanburg, South Carolina. And uh, I spent a few years trying to find meaning in life through pleasing other people. And I did things to right now that I'm not proud of. And I hung around people that were not doing very nice things. And the crazy thing was, as long as I was doing what they liked and what they were doing, we were best buds. As long as I had money to help fund what they were doing, we were best buds. But when Jesus Christ changed my life and I didn't desire those things I used to desire and I didn't put my money towards those things I shouldn't put my money towards, I stopped getting invited to the get-togethers. I was that that odd wad for God, so to speak, that had been on a Jesus trip. But I spent many years trying to find true meaning in life through pleasing people, through participating in sports, Attending church services and being as good a Christian as I thought I could be. But all of these things were efforts on my own strength. I tried to attend Sunday school. I tried to attend youth group. I tried to be what everybody wanted me to be. First, I lived in the wrong way. And the next, I tried to live the right way. But folks, all of it was in my own strength. Have you ever been at that time in your life to where you felt like you're trying to do everything to please other people. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a boss. Maybe it's who knows what it might be. Or or maybe you're trying to please God and you're doing your best efforts and thinking that as best you do, you always fall short. Well, I know in my life that all of these things were an attempt on my own limited strength. But the end result for me, how about you, but for me, the end result was emptiness, depression, in a life absent of hope. I knew from going to church as a young child that there was supposed to be some of this churchy Jesus type thing within me. But why did I not feel anything? You ever heard somebody say, I'm just not feeling it, preacher? I don't feel like a Christian today. I got news for you. There are mornings when I wake up and I don't say, Good Lord, it's morning. I say, good morning, Lord. And sometimes it's the vice versa. Sometimes I thank God that you had to make the sun rise again. But you know what? That's okay. I'm grateful because I'm still here. You're still here. And we're here for this moment and this time. But in that moment in my life, there was no purpose. And if the sun didn't come up the next day or I didn't see it, that was fine by me. Because my life had lost true meaning and purpose. All of my efforts fell short. Why was nothing working in my life? Well, Jesus continues to show the people of his day, and to you and I today, that the Judaism system of that day, when Jesus was starting his ministry, was broken. And its ability for us to establish a saving relationship with God was ineffective. And that in Nicodemus, we're going to see his story today, we see the inability of religion to save him. His religion was not able to save him, however a relationship with his creator would. See, Nicodemus, he was a high-ranking official in the Sanhedrin, yet uh, for many of those people, they were very well-educated, very politically motivated, very politically powerful, but they had no means to forgive people of their sins. And so we come to this point where Last week, we talked about Jesus had cleansed the temple, and so now today, we pick up John chapter 2, verse 23, and it says, because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust him, but Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. When I read that, that sends chills down my spine. That Jesus knew what was in the heart of every person. My friend, let me tell you today, Jesus knows every dark corner of your heart. Jesus knows every joy that you have, every tear that you have shed, every dream that you have, every hope that you have. Jesus knows that, and he loves you, and he died for you, and he wants you to love him and worship him. But we see Nicodemus here. We need Jesus whether we know it or not. Nicodemus had a need, but he didn't even see it. To put the following conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus in the context, we need to ignore the chapter break that we just saw and go backwards and go back to 23 where we started. Did you know that the self-help books are prevalent everywhere? There are so many people that are making money off of, in five steps you can have this. In four steps, you can do that. That If you go to a, a bookstore, you go to a library, or you go online, you'll see that most of the best sellers are self-help books. But uh, prof- Professor Timothy D. Wilson published an article in 2011 that, on why self-help books can ruin your life. Imagine that. Self-help books can ruin your life. He reveals the fact that there is what is known in the self-help industry as the 18-month rule. The 18-month rule. You might ask, what is the 18-month rule? Do you ask that? Ask me. There you go. What is the 18-month rule? Let me tell you what the 18-month rule is. It means that a person is most likely to buy a self-help book this week, And will have bought one 18 months earlier. So 18 months earlier, they have bought a self-help book and they're buying it again. Now look, if you've got self-help books and you've got people that are helping you, I'm glad to hear that. But I'm telling you that we're always looking for that next fix. We're always looking towards how we can fix it on our own. The problem, he says, with self-help books is that they can steer people away from effective solutions to their problems By suggesting that good health, love, and riches are theirs for the asking if they just think about them. That would be almost like if you're in a hole, digging yourself into a hole, and some self-help guru says, Hey, brother, dig harder. Think more positive about what you're digging. Just think you might get a treasure while you're digging. And you keep digging yourself into a hole, into a hole, into a hole, searching for meaning. I'm all for positive thinking and seeking to improve yourself. But if your source is based upon your own inner strength alone, then you're already defeated. Because Jesus puts puts it this way, and we just read in 23 to 25, that uh, we cannot place our faith solely in our own human strength. Jesus himself, he said in that passage, look back at what he says. He says, I know people. And I know how fickle they are. I know human nature is what he says. Folks, we cannot place our faith solely in our own human strength. Jesus knew that human strength caused people to follow him, not for who he was, but how they could personally benefit from him. Notice it says in there that they were following him not because of his teachings, not because he could forgive of sins, but because of the miracles he was doing. People were following Jesus in his earthly ministry because they wanted to get some of that. They had a loved one that was sick. They might have had an infirmity. They wanted to to be healed. And and we see as we study Jesus that every healing, every miracle, every parable had a purpose. But people were following him for the wrong reasons. Jesus loved those following him, but he didn't trust them. I'll put it this way. If you want to think about that, how in the world would Jesus love them but not trust them? Think of it this way. A parent loves their two-year-old child, right? A parent loves their two-year-old child like nothing else. But would you trust them enough to leave them unsupervised? Would you trust a two-year-old enough to, to leave them alone and say, look, we're going to go out, we're going to leave the house with you, and we'll be praying for you, and we'll be looking over you. You can call me if you need me, but I know you're too. but you just go ahead and have the house for yourself. We trust you, and we feel like that if you look within yourself hard enough, you'll be able to take care of yourself while mom and I go out on a date. I don't know of many parents that would do that. I don't know of many grandparents who do that. Is it they don't love him? Absolutely not. Is the fact that you have to supervise your child, the fact that you don't trust them or love them, The fact is, you love them with all of your heart, but you know what they're capable of. You know the trouble that they're capable of getting into because they haven't got the facilities to think on their own and to have the reasoning skills. So you do not put them in situations where you know that they will hurt themselves. That's the type of love Jesus is showing here. He's not degrading humans, but He's saying, I know that if I leave them alone, that they're going to get into trouble. That's why I came. And that's what Jesus is saying here. This is awesome and scary at the same time because here's the thing. Jesus knows your heart better than you do. Jesus knows a human heart. Why is that? Because He was human and He was divine. We do not serve a God that has never walked in our shoes. I mean, think about that. There are a lot of other religions, there are a lot of other cults out there where where the followers have to appease their God, and they are a God that has never walked on this earth. Or if they did walk into this earth, if you go to their graves, their bones are there. But Jesus was full on human, and Jesus was full on divine. He knew heartbreak. He knew betrayal. He knows grief. He knows disappointment. He knows joy. And he knows frustration. He knows burnout. And he knows love. And he knows sacrifice. If you spend five minutes in the Word of God, you will see that Jesus is a man that knows exactly what you're going through. Whether you are 3, 13, or 83, or on beyond... It doesn't matter. Jesus has been there and he knows. Jesus knows that if you are left to your own human intellect and your home, your own human nature alone, you cannot be trusted. That's why he came. Think about it. If we didn't need Jesus Christ, he wouldn't have came. He would, God would have just spun the world into existence and said, hey, best of luck. Try to figure it out. But everything... Was breaking down. The method that God had gave, given the Israelites through God being His, the Israelites being God's chosen people, they didn't want it. They didn't pursue it. So He had to come up with another way. The second thing we see is because knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus. Knowing about Jesus is not the same thing as knowing Jesus. That sounds pretty, pretty straightforward, doesn't it? In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3, let's read those. It says, there was a man, and his name was Nicodemus. He was a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. And after dark, one evening, he came to speak with Jesus, and he said, Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us your miraculous signs or evidence that God is with you. So this Pharisee, this, this member of the Sanhedrin said, it's obvious that there's something different about you. He was a member again of the Sanhedrin. That would basically be like he was the, the Supreme Court. He was a member of the Supreme Court of the Jewish Temple. He was a high ranking official. And he had political power. He could make decisions. He could do a lot within the worship. And he believed in the Old Testament. Even Jews today, they will believe in the Old Testament. They believed in the coming Messiah. They believed in the miracles. And they believed in the resurrection. Who is Nicodemus? Nicodemus is an example of us today. Nicodemus is an example. You could put yourself in Nicodemus' shoes. In hindsight, we see that he had all the blanks. You know, when you used to take those tests, it was fill in the blanks. I didn't like filling the blanks because you either knew it or you didn't. At least in multiple choice, you could guess, right? But we had all the blanks. Nicodemus had all the blanks, but nothing was filled in. He had no meaning in his life. He had religion in his life. He had structure in his life, but he had nothing that was life-changing in his life. That might be you today. That might be you. Right now, you're thinking, you know what? I I wasn't planning on coming to church today and doing business with God, but you know what, preacher? You're exactly right. I'm going through the motions, but yet, why do I feel so empty? And my friend, I would say, maybe you're trying to... To find salvation. Maybe you're trying to find repentance. Maybe you're trying to find peace. In your own strength. And not within. The love of Jesus Christ. Jesus saw Nicodemus. For who he really was. Masks as a whole. People are afraid. To be genuine. And authentic. What we see is Nicodemus. Is wearing a mask. I don't know if you remember uh, uh, maybe high school or junior high, they had drama club and you remember when you would see the drama club, they would have the logo of the comedy and the tragedy masks, you know, and so what would happen is back during the days of the Greeks and the Romans, they would have... These uh, art was a big part of their culture, and so they would do these plays, and they had no female actors, so they were all men that were acting, so the same actor might have to play different parts, and they may have to play women's parts. And so what they would have to do is they would have to use different masks to show the different characters they were using. That's where the comedy and the tragedy comes from, is those masks that we are wearing. Did you know that the term hypocrite comes from the Greeks and all of that about the art, saying that, that those who wear a mask, the person that wears the mask was a hypocrite. And I would say that there are a lot of people in churches today that are doing the same thing. That they come today and they look good and they wear their clothes and, and they, they say the right things and they do the right things, but yet inside they are empty and they are hurting. And some days we just have to take our masks off and to be real with God. I fully believe that if we as a church, and the church as a whole, meaning everybody, were to take their masks off, and to be real, and to be vulnerable, and to be pliable to what the Holy Spirit wanted, we wouldn't be able to fit people in this building. But we're too complacent to wear our masks. Think of the businessman that controls a large corporation. People follow him, and are accountable to him. And he can wear the 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 mask of a leader, but when he comes home, he sits in his recliner waiting to check out for the night from his family and all the stresses of the day. Think of the mom who tells everyone about the joys that she is experiencing as a stay-at-home mom when really she's crying out for someone to be her companion and someone just to listen to her and for her to have some adult time instead of nothing but baby time. Think of the churchgoer that says everything is great when asked about how they're doing, but silently deals with the inner pain and turmoil they want no one to share. Think of the intellectual who has the answers to everything, yet cannot understand why they are not happy or fulfilled. The point here is that wearing masks and and putting on a front is a huge drain. It can be exhausting to put on a front of who you want people to think you are and not who you are. Similarly, it's very draining to regularly act like you feel one way when you really feel another. Yes, there's a little bit of Nicodemus in all of us. And we, always, we also see in verse 2, Jesus was and is always accessible. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. Folks, we know why Nicodemus went to see Jesus at night. You know why, don't you? You know why Nicodemus went at night. So nobody would see him. See, he could have easily, Nicodemus had a lot of aides and he had a lot of assistance. He could have actually sent someone to go fill out Jesus and, and see what he was all about. But no, he himself was curious. And so he risked his position. He risked his power. He risked his political clout. He risked everything to go under the cover of night in the dark to see Jesus. Also, we know from John is that he uses the terms light and dark a lot in his writing to not only signify literal light and dark, but also to signify people that are illuminated with the light of Jesus Christ and people that are in the darkness of their sins. Isn't it amazing? Think about this. I've told you already that Judaism was failing among God's people and that it wasn't atoning for sin, that... We remember back a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the miracle at the wedding. The clay pots signified a religion that was empty and broken. We think about the fact that they were at the temple and Jesus cleared it out. And now here we have a member of the highest council of the Pharisees seeking Jesus. Is there any other proof that you need to see that the system was broke? Is there anything else you need to see other than the fact that man was trying to reach God in their own strength for their own benefit, and yet here you have the highest ranking official coming to see Jesus in the night saying, I've heard about what you're doing. Is it real? There is nothing wrong, and there is no wrong time to seek Jesus, whether you are in the light or whether you are in the dark. He was curious. Nicodemus addressed Jesus as teacher or rabbi. You know what that means? That means that that term that he gave him was almost like calling him master. Almost saying, look, I agree with what you're teaching, which was huge back in that day. And at this point in the conversation, Nicodemus knew of the works of Jesus and what he was doing but he had not claimed them for his own. As I said earlier, knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus. And Nicodemus illustrates that knowing about Christ is not knowing Christ. This leads us to our next point. What in the world does it mean to be born again? Nowadays, if someone calls you someone is born again, it's often a derogatory term. Oh, there's one of them Bible-thumping born-againers. Them intolerant bunch of people telling us that we ought to think about what we ought to do. The old born-againers, they just need to go have a church service and stay out of life, stay out of politics, stay out of all of our rights, and they can have their church, but them born-againers, I don't want any part of it. What does it mean to be born again? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 3 through 8, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean, exclaimed Nicodemus? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? This is one of those guys that was so smart he had no common sense, or he was being really sarcastic. He was saying, okay, I get that, Jesus, but how, am I, how is a man going to crawl back into his mother and be born again? I mean, he was literally thinking being born again. So again, I don't know whether he was being sarcastic Or he had a lot of intellectual knowledge, but not much common sense. We don't know. Either way, Jesus says, (laughs) I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of two things, of water and of the spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind, you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. Jesus pretty much says, you're not going to understand it even if I showed you. You've got to take it by faith. So the message, Jesus' central message is for you to find meaning in life, in this life and in the afterlife, to answer that question, what is the meaning of life? Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, and he's saying to you, and he's saying to me. The, the starting point where you put your feet into the chalks and you get ready to run, the starting point is being born again. That's how you find meaning in life. From the moment Adam and Eve were banished from the garden and our destination was hell, we were without hope. So being born again returns us to a relationship with God that was separated in the garden. Nicodemus proves this point in verse 4 where he talks about he didn't really understand what Jesus was doing when he says, what do you mean? How can a man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? For a man to be as wise as Nicodemus was, he sure was blind to the truth that Jesus was teaching. Folks, Do not let your limited intellectual understanding keep you from discovering the spiritual truths that are right in front of you. There are many of men and women through the ages that have tried to disprove this book. Right here. They have spent their lives trying to cut it apart. And they haven't succeeded yet. Matter of fact, some of them have come to know Christ because of that. If you've ever heard of Josh McDowell, or if you've ever heard of Lee Strobel, these are men that dedicated their lives to proving wrong something that they ended up finding for themselves. Don't think yourself out of eternal life. Don't think yourself out of a blessing. Don't be so smart in the world's eyes, but yet miss the fact that the true meaning of life is found in Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that we don't pursue knowledge. It doesn't mean that we don't try to get as smart as we can, but if you're looking for meaning in technology, I mean, I follow technology a lot. I mean, it's it's, you know, you you get the iPhone 7 and it's good for about 3 months and then the iPhone 8 comes out. Then before you know it, the iPhone 9, there's always something better, something they're working on. There were self-driving cars. Now in California they have a self-driving bus System They're going to roll out for... Who wants to be on that one? Buses are scary enough, let alone without a driver. That's going to be faith right there, brother. But you know what? We're always trying to find intellectual properties to, to make us feel smarter and better, but it doesn't matter. There's always going to be an upgrade. There's always going to be a glitch. There's always going to be a hack, but there is no hack for eternal life. Those who are born again will see the kingdom of heaven. Don't let your limited understanding of what you know thank you out of a blessing. This means we are born again with water and the spirit. I want to be clear about this. This does not mean, Jesus is not teaching that literal baptism saves you, that, that water does not save you. There are some, some folks that believe that, that the actual baptism part is what saves you. I don't know about you, but in my Bible, water doesn't save us. Water doesn't atone for sin. What is it, church? It's the blood of Jesus Christ. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. This is not saying the water has the ability to save someone. because I mean, think about it. If baptism was necessary for salvation, if you go with that school of thought, that baptism is necessary for salvation, then no one in the Old Testament would have ever been saved. No one in the Old Testament would be in heaven because they were not baptized. And this is true. Anyone who has been saved since this time would go to hell. If it's true, then that means if someone walks the aisle of the church but never gets baptized, they're going to go to hell. Is is Jesus' blood that inefficient? Absolutely not. What does it mean? It means that that we saw in chapter 2 that water was symbolic of the word of God. Folks, the thing that has... Cleansing power is the Word of God. We yield our life to God's Word, not try to make God's Word yield to us. That's the problem a lot of theologians are having. They're trying to make the Word of God fit their understanding, and that's backwards. It doesn't work. That means that we need to read the Bible and make our understanding fit it. This means a person can only be born again through the cleansing of God's Word and the power of His Holy Spirit. And we see here that we are given a spiritual life. Think about it. Verse 6, it says humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to a spiritual life. Folks, there is nothing you and I can do in our strength to be born again. And I wish I had the the picture I was going to show you, but uh, there's a group of of Christians called the Navigators, and, and they have books and They have a real good book, uh, Jerry Bridges wrote on trusting God and some other things. But they have this evangelistic presentation. And basically, if you could look at this pulpit, you could see the steps on this side and the steps on this side. The steps on this side would represent you as man, as as humans, you and your life. And on this side, these steps represent God. And this that I'm standing on would be a separation that you cannot get by. Because this would be sin. And this gap is so wide that you can't, man-made things cannot get over it. You cannot will yourself over there. The only way to get us to God across this gulf of sin and death in our lives is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ forms the bridge to bring us from death to life. To bring us from one side of the spectrum over to God. Only Jesus Christ can do that. And the mystery here is Jesus is the how and why of being born again. Folks, it's not up to us to understand because we would, if we could understand how salvation worked, we would replicate it and say that we can do it better. That's our tendency. Whatever God is doing, we can do it better. There are people that set themselves up to be their own gods. We can fix it. That's why many of you are in shambles today because you have tried to fix your life in your own strength and it works for a minute and then it falls apart. There's a reason. You weren't designed to fix your own mess. That's why Jesus came. To die for you. God makes salvation a mystery so that we may depend upon him. And just as you had no control... Over your physical birth, you have no control over the Holy Spirit. Did any of you have a choice to be born or not? No, it just happened. You were born. You didn't. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose your family. You didn't. I mean, it, it happened like it happened, right? And that's the thing—the mystery of of me preaching and and you sharing your faith with others and people coming to know Jesus Christ. How does it happen? I don't know. When it happens, is there certain things that you can say? Was it a great sermon? Was it the fact that the books fell off the stand? I don't know what it was. But you know what? If you're feeling the tug of the Holy Spirit to join Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, I don't explain why that happens, but I just know you better answer it when it comes. Because it's a mystery. I tell people all the time as a preacher, I'm in sales, I'm not in management. God knows what's your what's going on in your life. It says even here, Jesus knows your heart better than you do. Jesus is the answer to life's greatest question. Nicodemus came to a crossroads of what he knew about Jesus and what Jesus was revealing to him. Do you really understand the weight of salvation that hangs on your shoulders today? Because folks, if you're searching for the meaning of life, if you're searching for hope, for the afterlife, then Jesus has answered your question today. What must you do? Well, you must be born again. What Nicodemus did with this information, we'll find out next week. But you have a chance today. If you'd like to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, if you'd like for him to bring you meaning to life, maybe as a new believer, or maybe as a believer that has tried enough on their own and and forsaken the strength that is within you, Whatever it might be, if you'd like to pray with me, if you'd like to know Jesus Christ, if you'd like to come join this church, or if you'd like to come to the altars, this invitation time is for you. Would you please stand?